On this episode of Your Asian Best Friends, we talk about the end of Noma and what it means for the fine dining industry. Plus, Taylor and I react to an interview I did almost a year ago with Michelle Yeoh, Kihui Kwan, and Stephanie Shu, the stars of Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. I'm Taylor. And I'm Bernard. And we are your Asian best friends. All right, Taylor. So this is uh, a subject that I think we have a lot to say about, yeah. that, but we haven't gotten to uh, till now. It's kind of a big deal for us. Yes. Uh, on today's show, we're going to be talking about the closure of Noma. Yeah. The best restaurant in the world. For so many years. Forever, seemingly. Yeah. <laughs> seemingly the, really the benchmark for fine dining. Yeah. Uh, recently, Noma closed down, or, or they, they uh, shifted mm-hmm. into a new business model, no longer a fine dining restaurant. Yeah. And this is, to some, considered to be a seismic shift in the industry, the food industry, of which we were both a part of. Yeah. Which is why we care so much about this. So we're going to talk about the closure of Noma and what that means for the industry. And later on in the show, we've got a really special treat for all of you guys. I was actually in conversation with Kihui Kwan, which I just learned how to say his name correctly. <laughs> we were saying Kihai Kwan. Yeah. It's Hui. I didn't, I, I mean, it makes sense now that I look at his name, but I always yeah. said Kihai Kwan. Kihui Kwan, Michelle Yo, and Stephanie Shu. I was in conversation with all three of them. Uh, months ago when the movie Everything Everywhere All at Once, mm-hmm. you didn't know what I was talking about <laughs> and you listened to this show, uh, I spoke to all of them. We're going to share that conversation with you today and and Taylor and I are actually going to react to uh, to uh, their answers months later now. I think mm-hmm. at the time when I talked to them uh, for this interview, I none of us knew really how big the movie was going to become. Mm. So I think it'll be interesting to look back at how they were feeling at the time Yeah, before the movie blew up. This was before it was even released in theaters. So it'll wow. be cool to to hear what they have to say. Uh, but first, Noma. I know Taylor, you've been wanting to talk about this for a while. Uh, wh- where do we start? Let's. I guess let's let's set the stage. Uh, Noma, uh, notoriously, the, you know, one of the best restaurants in the world in, in Copenhagen. Yep, Denmark. Um, what was so extraordinary extraordinary about uh, Noma is that they live basically in an Arctic climate, right? And they made a name for themselves, not just as the best restaurant in the world, but as a restaurant that innovated with foraging and produce. Yeah. In a place where you, it's clearly hard to come by. Mm-hmm. And now they're, they, they've closed down, uh, which I guess is shocked a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely shocked. Uh, you know, why would the best restaurant in the world right. close down? Rene Redzepi, the, the chef owner, um, uh, not an old guy by any means. Mm-hmm. No, it mm-hmm. seemed nowhere near retirement. So, so it was, it was kind of crazy news. What was your reaction to hearing Nomo's closing? Um, I think it fit a pattern that we've been seeing um, recently of the chefs shifting their business models to be more sustainable for them as a business, but also for food industry professionals, you know, before this, David Kinch closed Manresa. Very recently as well. Which yeah. was also a just a hugely influential restaurant. Um, doesn't have quite the same name as Noma, but that's through no fault of the food. It's just how 
how very the, few restaurants do. <laughs> yeah, very few <laughs> restaurants have the same name as Noma does. So to me, it started to feel like a pattern and less as like an isolated incident. Because you do see these big restaurants close. Like uh, before Noma, the, there was El Bulli. Which oh, was of course, of course. A huge, huge restaurant that... that um, shut its doors when everybody thought it had more to give but talk about influential yeah but i think the pandemic really shifted things for for folks and i think they saw it forced people that normally don't stop to stop and examine what their lives are and i think this goes for the chefs but also the the cooks that work under them and you know you recognize that it's a really uh, abusive industry that takes a lot from you and doesn't give you a lot back just seems like a shifting landscape to me yeah it's it's for the longest time it was kind of a den of thieves that the food industry like it was we anyone who's been in it knows how how toxic and damaging it is to one psyche to be in the the restaurant industry particularly the fine dining industry it's grueling and um and it really wrecks people in more ways than one. People leave the industry with PTSD. I'm I'm one of them. You know, I mm-hmm. uh, I wasn't in fine dining, but I was I was a beggar. It almost killed me. And uh, it's it's tough. It's toxic, and especially at the level of Noma, it requires more effort than is healthy for any one person yeah. to sustain that standard i mean noma was the best restaurant in the world for a reason neither of us ate there right no i never did oh, okay. no. <laughs> you're like no i actually ate there <laughs> i ate at noma <laughs> yeah i did not eat at noma it's but we know why that i mean we we just being in the industry and being into food you know renee redzeppi you know what the work they were doing at noma yeah yeah absolutely their uh, philosophies and, and methods um influenced pretty much any fine dining restaurant you've eaten at. If, if, if yeah. you've eaten at a fine dining restaurant, likely the people who worked there either worked at Noma or were influenced by Noma. Yeah. So to operate a restaurant every day at that standard is just, um, as, as the cooks who have spoken out about Noma since its closure have said, is just punishing yeah. And, and, and I think everyone's coming, kind of coming to a consensus that you can run a restaurant that's not quote unquote fine dining, still serve delicious food and lead lives and have your staff lead lives that, that are better than the ones that you would lead working at a place like Noma mm-hmm. where you're working. I say, I think, uh, one of the, a, co- a cook that worked at Noma his name is David David Z- Zilber. He spoke to the Washington Post, and he was saying that, um, quote, there were easily weeks at Noma in my first year where I worked three times that. And he's referring to the work week hours. So a, a typical work week is 37 hours for a restaurant. Mm-hmm. So he's saying he worked three times that at Noma. Yeah. Um, he said he'd wake up at 5 a.m. in the morning and go to bed at 3 a.m. the next day. Which is insane, and but that's what it takes to that be is Noma. What it takes. I mean, that's what it takes to be restaurants that don't even reach the heights that Noma um, reached either. Um, it's just a punishing, punishing industry. And when I was in it, 
I gotta be honest, I loved the punishment in some ways. I liked feeling worn out yeah. at that time in my life. It was everything to me. It was my family. Um, I gave everything to it. There were certainly weeks where, you know, I didn't take days off and the days would just blend into one another. Not to mention that, like, one job might not be enough to sustain you. So there's times where I was working two to three different jobs at two to three different places where you can certainly start racking those hours. The only thing that's keeping you there is that you love it for whatever reason. You've been drawn to this industry that doesn't reward you for how much you give it. And I don't necessarily think it's to me it's it's more of a product of a broken system that diners don't want to pay the amount of yeah. money that they should pay and even a restaurant like noma which is you know it's an expensive meal like no doubt about that but the amount of people it takes and these people are experts at their craft and they're crafting these amazing experiences for you and they're being underpaid. Yeah. You know, the price is justified and they're still being underpaid. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It was a high ticket for, for the best restaurant in the world. And those people are just, I think as collectively and as, as an industry, um, all these chefs and cooks and even front of house people are, I think you can hear it. If you're, if you're connected to the industry at all, we're all saying that it's not worth it anymore. Yeah, you know we're we're all feeling it. We're it's not worth it financially. It's not worth it to what, what you have to sacrifice as far as time with your family, mm-hmm. physically. We we were all. I mean, you and I definitely took a physical toll from the industry, yeah. and we were nowhere near the level of Noma. Right. So you can't. I can't imagine what they went through um, to put out that kind of stuff. Hey, can, can you? You you'll be better than me at this. Can you, for the listeners, uh, maybe if they're not familiar with Noma, can you just kind of describe the food at Noma, what they were doing exactly, and why, why, what made them so great? I mean, you definitely touched on it. I think, for me, what made them so great was creating something out of nothing. I think at, in the Bay Area, we can say we're farm to table really easily because we have access to absolutely anything that you could ever want because we have the right climate for that. But where Rene Rizepi really innovated was that he saw nothing and was like, I think there's something here that I can make food out of. And not only food, but the best food in the world. And that those creative limitations that he put him that he created these boundaries for himself, right? And I think he just exceeded anybody's expectations of what you could do in a climate like that. And not only be a good restaurant, but be the best restaurant in the world is remarkable to me. Yeah. And really leading in innovation in the culinary world. I mean, they were doing the uh, unripe strawberries before everybody else. They were presenting root vegetables as barbecue before (laughs) everybody else. Yeah. I mean, they they really, uh, Renee and his team had really led the charge there. And it's, I think their acknowledge their closure to me also the closure of Noma and the shift to more of a food lab now where they're, mm-hmm. they're innovating in food and kind of helping out communities and shipping their product out to the world as opposed to doing a fine dining restaurant. I think this shift, 
it kind of signals that they knew that what they were doing was bigger than any one restaurant. It's, mm. it's not about some rich people having, you know, a nice meal at this place in Copenhagen. They, they're obviously ambitious people and they're great at what they do. And I think they're, I, I don't know, but I think they probably felt that their skills were, could be put to better use. As, as serving the world as opposed to these diners who are in probably the 1% of wherever they come from. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they have an incredible amount of skill and influence that they can use. You know, even even the the guy you mentioned, David Zilber, he was incredibly influential in his own right, just as the guy that ran their fermentation program. Right, um, right. When he released his book, on fermentation, there wasn't a cook that I knew that didn't have that book. Whether we understood it, whether we were able to do it, it was just important to have because this is the most influential restaurant in the world's guide to fermentation. I'd never heard of him. <laughs> I must admit. I said, I said, you know, when I said, when I said the quote, I said, David uh, Zibler. <laughs> <laughs> but he's not at Noma anymore, and he's been pretty outspoken about like the struggles there. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you follow him on Instagram or any of other social channels, like he's an incredibly intelligent person. And you have this incredibly intelligent person that's insanely skilled at what he is doing that creates a book that has influenced all across the world that's on everybody's shelf. And most likely he was getting paid, I don't know, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen dollars yeah. an hour. <laughs> you know, like that's insane. It's yeah. insane. You know, and you know, those eighty hour weeks, those those, you know, ninety hour weeks, hundred hour weeks, they don't come with overtime. Right. That's right. Um, most of the time, like when I was in the industry I had a the owner of a restaurant be like, don't put your hours that you're working overtime on. Just put your eight hours and then, you know. Stay. Stay. <laughs> and that's common practice. It's not like this was an evil um, restaurant owner. It was a restaurant owner that saw the profit margin, saw how much she was going to be able to charge for the food that she was putting out, and said, this is not going to be sustainable for you to clock these hours. So you can either stay here and learn and continue to work for us, or I'm going to have to find somebody else. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Really common practice. Yeah. It's, uh, you said it earlier. I mean, the industry is broken. Yeah. It doesn't work because I mean, there are a lot of issues. I mean, tips don't make sense. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, people are underpaid. The diners aren't willing to pay a premium for premium product. Yeah. I mean, uh, there's so many issues and I think, yeah, like fine dining just doesn't fit anymore. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's also not only does it not fit Taylor. I don't, I don't know about you, but like, it's not as desirable anymore to me. Mm. I love fine dining, but like, uh, am I as inclined to pay hundreds and hundreds of dollars for a night out of delicious food anymore after the pandemic? No, I'm not as inclined. No. And I think most people aren't because you can find really super, super delicious food that is Michelin level for a much more affordable price at a place that maybe isn't, um, doesn't adhere to 
fine dining tropes, mm-hmm. but is an amazing experience nonetheless. I think I think that's more desirable these days to most people. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, it's not. I don't feel the same way, but I think uh, something that's also important is that these affordable restaurants, like, they're still being underpaid. <laughs> yeah, the whole industry is broken. <laughs> yeah, the whole yeah. the whole industry is broken. It's not just fine dining. It's a it's everything. So, yeah, I it's it's hard to to wrap my head around. Honestly, it's like. I am so thankful for the experiences that I had in the restaurant industry. Um, Like you hear that cliche, if it doesn't feel like a job, like that actually did not feel like a job. As grueling as it was and as punishing as it was, it was still heaven in some ways. And it's really sad to me that you can't have that and, uh, wage that gives you the life that you deserve yeah it's broken if you just lay it all out there you see just a broken system that's going to be incredibly difficult to correct because you have to correct human behavior and that's not just the back of house that's the diners yeah yeah the diners really dictate uh, most of it and uh it's sad to see kind of this era coming to an end um because i i know there was you know i think around the time that that show um what was it called the like pretty food chef show oh chef's table Uh, chef's table Mm -hmm. when that came out uh i feel like a more casual diners were like oh i want to do that I want to go to these places. And there was like this big boom in fine dining. And that was really cool because now people are eating this world-class food that was really stuff you can't make at home. Mm -hmm. And that's cool. I I think that that was amazing to see. I remember being excited by people that I knew that like wanted to go eat at like Atelier Crenn or something. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like that's freaking awesome, man. (laughs) Like Go give them your business. That's great. Uh, But now I feel like, you know, you see this shift with Manresa closing and Noma closing. And that tier of of restaurant not being, like I mentioned before, I don't think it's as desirable to the consumers as it was before during that boom and and, and during other like um, swells in popularity for fine dining in the past. I think we're, we're, de- we're maybe like in a valley now for, for fine dining. But um, maybe it'll come back and we'll find a way to make it sustainable yeah. in the future. Not that fine dining's gone. There's plenty of fine dining restaurants in major cities that you can go to still and are doing good business. Yeah. But the fact remains that their staff is not getting paid what they should be paid. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think, you know, cooks and chefs are incredibly resourceful people, so I would not put it um beyond their reach to reinvent the industry and I think we're kind of in that moment where we're reinventing it, but it's painful for a lot of people. We're going to lose things. It's just not going to look the same, I don't think. If it yeah. does look the same, it means that we're still not fixing the problems that are at the root of this. And we're, we'll just go through this transformation again and again and again. But yeah, I, I don't, I'm not sure what's going to happen. But the fact that people like David Chang and Rene Redzepi, David Kinch, that they are looking at this and saying, this is broken. This isn't feasible anymore. I don't think they're giving up. Like, no. I, I think they're thinking, what can I do next? What yeah. does this mean? 
I think that's what I see. Um, you know, you mentioned David Chang and, and, and Renee and what they're doing now. They've both kind of um, pivoted to focusing from focusing on the restaurant experience to bringing higher quality food and that level of restaurant food to people at home. Mm-hmm. Because now we've experienced this pandemic. A lot of people are staying home. So now David Chang and Renee Redzepi are making products that help people cook more delicious food at home, mm-hmm. like restaurant quality food. And they're releasing cookbooks like uh, David Kinch of Manresa. Mm-hmm. Most recent cookbook was like, you know, how to cook at home or whatever. <laughs> like it's, right. it's like really simple recipes, but delicious recipes. <clears throat> And I, I'm seeing that from, from Chang and Redzepi and, and David Kinch and a lot of other chefs too, where they're kind of finding ways to get their food philosophies into people's homes to make people's lives better for a cheaper price, mm-hmm. but also making, you know, a running a successful business themselves. You know, Dave Chang's making a killing on that fucking salt and chili crunch yeah. and uh, the Momofuku stuff is great. So maybe that's where we're headed. But then beyond that, before we end, I maybe see once, maybe once they change, if they're successful in changing the home cook culture Mm -hmm. and we're able to make really delicious food at home, maybe restaurants then become more of a emphasis on the experience, experiential part of it. So they'll focus more on the um, front of house stuff, the decor, um, how they present their food which is always what I've been interested in most anyways at mm-hmm. fine dining restaurants. Of course you want the food to be delicious, but you want something like Alinea where, where they're giving you a balloon you can eat or whatever. Like mm-hmm. that, maybe that stuff will become, uh, we'll see a boom in that, uh, later on down the line. I hope so. Um, ideally. Yeah. We'll see. <laughs> yeah. I, I definitely hope so. Um, and yeah, I think what we've seen is, or what a lot of these, uh, chefs are keen in on is that profitability is in in creating these products that are highly reproducible at enormous quantities and not making these bespoke experiences at restaurants and to your point maybe that helps fund a mm. uh, revitalized restaurant industry where everybody's getting paid equally yeah, we and we got to get rid of tips, but that's a conversation for another day. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Everyone should be making a living wage, no matter what. Okay, guys, now for something really, really special. We've got an interview uh, I did with... Michelle Yeoh, Kihue Kwan, and Stephanie Shu from right before Everything Everywhere All at Once uh, released last year. Um, the first question I asked was about how a lot of times Asian movies, <laughs> Asian American movies, they kind of are, to me, following in white people's footsteps a lot of the time, like mm-hmm. Shang-Chi was, uh, you know, the Asian version of a Marvel superhero, something white people did first, and then Crazy Rich Asians, and a lot of other uh, romantic comedies are like an Asian romantic lead, which is something white people did before. But Everything Everywhere All at Once, to me, was, there's no movie like it. This is not a, this is not Asians trying to do something that white people have already done. This is a wholly unique 
type of movie that was made by Asians and stars Asians. I thought that was uh, a really extraordinary. So I asked uh, the three of them about this, and Stephanie Shu had something to say. Yeah, not just Asian people, but I think this movie is kind of what we all need. Yeah. And I, I really mean that, you know, to be inspired, to be to see something like we've never seen before that is beyond our wildest dreams. It's what audiences need, what Hollywood needs, what filmmakers need, what, you know, my parents need, mm -hmm. what people my age need, you know, um, it's really special. It's been so exciting to know how special it is and then get to share it and really feel people be as excited as we are about it. That's been so, 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 so awesome and exciting. So what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's, uh, it's interesting. Um, cause I, uh, she touches on, uh, how the film in its uniqueness creates almost this universal joy in the audiences that are going to see it. And I think that is something that you do miss if you're just following in the footsteps of, you know, films that come bef before it. I think, the staying power of this movie is that, and honestly, the impact of this movie is there's absolutely universal themes, but they're presented in such a new way that it requires you to look at them from a different perspective and learn something um, because of that. Yeah, I think I totally agree. And, you know, how she mentioned that this is a movie that so many of us Asians needed. Mm -hmm. and wanted and, and really yearned for. I think that's so true. And, and um, it's nice, like I said, on Asians in the News, um, to see a movie that it, in many ways reflects my story, um, coming from an immigrant family, uh, on the big screen, and presented in that manner, and now, now up for uh, Academy Awards. It's like, yeah, I, I did need this. <laughs> She's right. Uh, next, Kihui Kwan had something to say uh, about this as well. You know, I mean, I, I, I think you said in the beginning, uh, you know, we, we started with, you know, a romantic lead and uh, a superhero. What's really interesting about, you know, everything everywhere all at once is that... You get to play all three. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so these are really amazing characters. This movie, you know, even though it is, you know, what there's really no category for it, but if you were to categorize it, you know, it would be, you know, a big science fiction action comedy with a big heart. But at the same time, it's about a family uh, with issues, universal issues that are relatable to everybody, regardless of your, you know, race, culture, background, religion, social status, you know, none of that, because, if, you know, it, it, it just deals with problems that we all face every single day. And to be able to to feature a, a, an Asian family, specifically a Chinese family, uh, it's incredible. Uh, it's something that, oh my gosh, you know, when, when I started uh, as a child, actor, there were no scripts like this. There were mm. zero scripts like this for, for us. And, and, to, and to have to wait 38 years, you know, for this, it's just incredible. It's so inspiring and I feel so hopeful uh, and you know it's I, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful to the Daniels uh, and, and also for this opportunity with, with, with Michelle and Jamie Lee Curtis and James Hong and Stephanie it's, 
it's what a wonderful journey it has been. It's so weird listening to this. I did the, I this did this interview months ago. Mm-hmm. I'm like getting chills listening. Like yeah. I was just sitting in front of this guy saying this stuff because <laughs> now they're like a big deal, right? Like right, they're they're right, heading right. to the Oscars, uh, uh, likely going to do well mm-hmm. at the Oscars. One of the biggest movies in the world right now. Man, to look to listen back to this is giving me chills. Yes, yeah, hard not to listen to him in particular and not get um, yeah. emotional. I think because you know the story behind it, you know the struggle that he went through, and this gift that he's given us, but also the gift that's been given to him through all that struggle. Um, life doesn't usually work out like that, yeah. <laughs> you know, so it almost feels like a a, a fairy tale. And that's a great way to put it. It's kind of, it's beautiful to see it actually um, happen. And you can feel his, his gratitude for, for the Daniels and the script that they, that they wrote. But he is such a huge part of what makes this film special. So I'm incredibly grateful for his performance. Yeah, yeah, and he, you, like you said, you can tell he's grateful too. I'm, I'm just so, it's so weird listening to this. I want to like go back and tell him, it's like, dude, the movie's gonna do great. <laughs> you know, like he's, he's already like freaking out about this, and right. this is prior to the movie being released. None of us in that room knew that mm-hmm. this was gonna be that big of a deal. Yeah, this big of a deal. We know it might do very well, maybe. Yeah, and he's, he's already so happy about it. So that's, that's just he, like he said, what did he say, thirty eight years. Yeah. 38 years, no scripts like this ever. Mm-hmm. And now it, it worked, you know, they, they, their work uh, totally, totally is a, a success. So yeah, it's cool to hear that. So next up, I uh, mentioned that at the time, uh, the, the string of anti-Asian hate crimes had been really um, sweeping the country uh, really uh, rapidly at the time that we did this interview. So I brought up that a lot of, uh, the elders in our community at the time had been being brutalized in the street uh, and a lot of older Asian women. And I told Michelle that it meant a lot to see her as this superhero up on the big screen and that to our community in a time when we were in a lot of pain, a lot of our families were, were losing people, members of their family to see her telling this story and looking as great as she does in this movie was super, uh, moving and inspirational and i wanted to get her reaction uh to to that to uh, this movie that celebrates her as an actress on the big screen it is a culmination of like all my career in a sense um perhaps it needed all this time before i could get to this place mm. to have the the kind of experience the the emotional depths and all that to bring together this, because it cannot be a younger woman. A younger woman is already a superhero, right? It has to be an older woman who's beaten down by life. And unfortunately, we look around and we see not just from the Asian community, but from all communities, especially from immigrants who have come here for a better life, who is trying to be successful and hopefully create a better future for their children. You see them when you walk to Italy town, Chinatown, Koreatown, all these. And I see them all the time, but they've never been given a voice. 
they're sort of like, you know, a lot of the, the mothers are sort of like taken for granted. They should do that, right? I mean, it's a mother. A mother does all those kind of things and you don't even stop and consider it. So I thought this was such a great opportunity to be able to portray someone like that that is so vital and important to our society mm. and to families globally. Um, and to be able to, I think that's what, as an actor, that's what you need to do, is to be able to tell real stories. Mm. And Daniel's India fearlessness has written an incredible story like that. Um, of course, like we keep saying, the beating heart is the family. It's about love. It's about finding each other again. It's like the mother into whatever universes she will always find her daughter. Well, yeah. Because that is her love. And how to keep, you know, a love that was, that's been taken for granted as well. Because you know, the husband and wife, they've been together for so long. It's almost like, I don't have time. I don't need to take care of you. You should be able to take care of yourself, right? And me and everything else. So it was, that for me was the best challenge. Because mm -hmm. I hadn't played a character like that. Mm -hmm. But in this character, I get to play all the other crazy universes as well. Right. That spoke on so many levels of emotion. It's like the hot dog fingers with Jamie Lee Curtis. With Deirdre, blah, 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 blah. I don't know how to say it. Deirdre, blah, You know, it's like in the real, in the real Evelyn Wang world, she is the antagonist, the one who's like driving her crazy because of the taxes. And she plays it to perfection of someone who does her job. And that's all I'm here to do. And we know all these people, yeah. right? So mm -hmm. that's why I think people are walking away from the, the after crying and laughing and all this kind of things. It's like, it's so relatable, whether it's the mother-daughter, whether it's the husband and wife, the, the daughter-father relationship, mm -hmm. and then people that you know, who you are fighting with all the time, and maybe come, become friends at the end of the day. So I was presented with a lot on the plate, but thank God I was greedy. Yeah. <laughs> it's just being a show, yeah. It's like being a So, um, but the geniuses of the Daniels who were so brave and they knew they could do it because they are also technical geniuses. They knew how to connect the dots mm. because if you didn't, the chaos would be, yeah. it would just eat you up alive. Right. But how do you keep that chaos simmering and bubbling, right? Until the bagel, that's why the, the, the title, I think is just so apropos. It's just like, um, correct for right. it. That that, where, when you are laughing at the, the, the wackiness, the weirdness, but I think that's what we need to do right now in our lives as well, is to be able to step back or dive into it and find the humanity. And you know, in all that chaos, we have to come together and come out of it as a whole. Otherwise we will be sucked in yeah. and we don't know where we're going to go anymore. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Um, what an answer from Michelle. Yeah, that Yeo. was she, she gave me so much there.
she gave you a lot. I mean, the thing that, like, there's, every once in a while there's these phrases that people will say that will just stick in my mind and I'll keep for the rest of my life. And right now I just had one of those when she said a, a young woman is already a superhero. Oh, yeah, I, I, I reacted to that too. <laughs> I forgot she said that. Yeah. What a freaking line, man. And that is so true. I know just talking to my to my to my mom and her experience as a woman in this world and she has talked to me about something this moment when you reach a certain age where you're invisible this whole life you've been under the male gaze and then at some point you're just mm. invisible and that's what her her answer reminded me of wow what a incredible answer <laughs> yeah yeah i understand why you said wow <laughs> yeah, right. you gotta keep that in I was like, wow <laughs> i mean it's funny because i remember that listening to this i remember i was she gave me that in- incredible answer yeah which she just like taught me a few meanings of life and in, in, right. like, in like a few minutes there <laughs> But I was also at the same time thinking, God, she is so beautiful. <laughs> I couldn't believe that she was talking to me. That's why she explained apropos to Yeah, you. she explained to me what apropos meant. I was sitting there with my tongue hanging out. <laughs> I was really in awe. Like, I, could, I couldn't believe it. It was such a great answer. I just said, wow. Yeah. But I was also thinking, I only have 10 minutes for this interview, and she just took five minutes of it. <laughs> So, so I was, it was a, I was a ball of emotion there. She answered like 15 questions, right? <laughs> but she's great. So next up, I mentioned to Ki Hui Kwan that when I was a kid, I got called short round. Um, and, uh, I, th- I think Michelle and Stephanie at first thought that it was a, like a nice story that I was sharing, but it actually wasn't. It was, it was a almost a racial slur that people would uh, levy at me when I was a kid. Um, and I mentioned to him that being called short round when I was a kid in a derogatory way, and then for him to leave the movie industry for so long, for 38 years, mm-hmm. and now to come back, I was telling him about how emotional it made me to watch him portrayed as a hero, a superhero on the big screen and as a kind person on the big screen, like, mm. like, uh, um, someone who, whose kindness is, is there, <laughs> is there superpower yeah. power in a way I loved It made me so emotional watching him up there after all these years. And I asked him how it felt for him to be eliciting this emotion from so many people. Well, first of all, I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful that the uh, that the audience is so it's it's been so uh, they embrace my return, you know. Uh, there's nothing I wanted more. Uh, the the reason why I stepped away from acting was because there was just not that many opportunities for an Asian actor at that mm-hmm. time. Uh, and uh, and when all you do is just sit around and wait for that phone to ring, uh, and it and it comes far and few in between. It, it, you know, it's very dispiriting. It's very disheartening. Uh, so when I got the call about this project and this script, I mean, it was one of the, the most happy reading I've ever done. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, and to see how this Chinese family is being portrayed and, and to that, it was just, you know, I, I, the thing is, you know, it, I, you know, I was working behind the camera all these years, um, but I noticed that there was something brewing on the small and big screen. 
you know, more and more Asian actors were being featured in more prominent roles. Uh, so to be able to return to my roots, I mean, as cliche as it, it may sound, this is a full circle moment for me. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, you know, a lot of times I, I meet a lot of, over the years, I've met a lot of people like you and also, you know, a lot of the Asian talents working in Hollywood today. And, and they always uh, say that, Key, you know, you're the OG, you know, thank you so much for paving the way for us to be here. And it's interesting because they are also the one that paved the way for my return. Mm. Uh, mm. And it's, uh, uh, it's uh, to see what's been happening in the last few years. Uh, it's really inspiring, and I'm very optimistic uh, to see where things are going. Of course, having said that, you know, there's still a lot more to be done, but sustainable improvements, you know, take time and they happen gradually. Uh, but I am, I am hopeful. Yeah, it's so. So I'm looking at this, Taylor. The, I did this interview on March 20th, 2022, wow. almost a year ago. Yeah. How far we've come. That's amazing. That is pretty amazing. I think on, I maybe last episode, I mentioned that I didn't care so deeply about whether or not everything everywhere all at once won all these awards Mm -hmm. at the Oscars. The winning wasn't the thing for me. And I think this really just listening to this and listening to his answer to that question and how. Uh, things have been looking up for him in his career now. It just really solidifies my position in that way back then when I did this interview, we already won. Mm-hmm. Listen, he's he's already hopeful back then. This is a year ago. Yeah. He's so happy. He's, he's, he's hopeful for his career, for the industry. He knows that this movie is special. So I think, yeah, I think we, we've already won. This is, this is great to hear him uh, even way back then before he got, he was doing all these award speeches, getting all this recognition from others in the industry. Before all that, he was, he was, he already knew that, that this was a special movie. Yeah. And I think it's, it's interesting that he mentioned um, the respect he gets from other Asian actors in the industry about him, you know, sort of blazing the trail for them and him being able to return due to the great work that they've done in turn. Yeah, I, I think it just goes back to what um, we talked about earlier. It's like, you know, the story of Trailblazers isn't often a happy ending. They usually right. face so much opposition that by the end of it, they don't really have anything left to, to give. Unsung heroes. Unsung heroes, yeah. And honestly, like he himself, he got to that point where he was like, I'm, I can't do this anymore. And then he gets this role and shows everyone what we've all been missing for 38 years with one of the best performances I've seen in, I I don't know how long. And I'm just so excited. I'm also hopeful, but I'm, I'm just so excited that we get to see him in his next roles. Um, Yeah. And we get to see more of him and more of what he he has to give. Yeah, what a time we're living in, Taylor, as Asians. Yeah. As Asian, this is so exciting. Uh, as we're recording this, uh, the Oscars is coming up. As you guys are listening to this, uh, the Oscars is, I think, just a few nights away, if I did my, yeah. <laughs> my math correctly. <laughs> um, so... You know, it's. I thought it'd be nice to listen to this interview from a year ago to see how they were feeling back then, and uh, yeah, it's it's cool to know now that they 
or have been rewarded for all their great work with this movie. Yeah. It's so cool. And now we're going to see if they win the big one uh, yeah. <laughs> at the at the Academy Awards. And uh, guys, come back next episode. Taylor and I are going to react mm-hmm. to the Oscars and uh, see whether or not everything, everywhere, all at once uh, took it home. Uh, like I said, either way, we won already. This movie, so many people have seen it now and it's buzzing everywhere. And these actors are getting their flowers. But uh, yeah, we, I really want them to win this big one, too. Um, thank you guys uh, for listening. Remember to subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening to this. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram. And please join us next time. Stick with us. I'm Bernard. And I'm Taylor. And we are your Asian best friends. <laughs>